Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, we are here in Chris's office again today to uh, see another video from John Clayton uh, on his Does God Exist series. Uh, today, uh, Mr. Clayton introduces some uh, interesting um, issues for us. Uh, Chris has already told me that he uh, disagrees with Clayton, uh, which is fine. Um, I disagree with Clayton on on some things. Um, but as I have said from the beginning, um, two things. Uh, keep an open mind. You might learn something that you can fit into uh, your scheme of how uh, of how we understand uh, this world and how this world uh, matches what we find in the Bible. And the other thing is this: try to maintain a um, an appropriate balance of the things that he has to say versus what is really important in the Bible. We can talk about uh, a number of things that uh, we disagree on and um, that uh, that really is immaterial in the larger uh, picture of things. So um, try to keep a focus on what is important. Uh, and as Clayton says, even in this, the Bible is designed to communicate to us uh, the plan of God's salvation from beginning to end. And that is what is important. And that is what it is designed to do. It isn't designed to give us the type of information that he is giving us. It might, it might um, agree or disagree with what he's, what he's presenting to us, or at least in our minds. So, uh, just keep that proper perspective and uh, we'll listen to him as he begins to talk to us on the age of things. How old is our world? And Welcome to the Does God Exist video series, program number 28, The Age of Things. We've tried to deal with the question of evolution by building a foundation of evidence. We've tried to point out some of the difficulties that evolution has. We've tried to point out some of the problems that fundamentalist creationists have. And probably one of the areas where there is the greatest amount of controversy is the question of how old things are. Now, there are many vested interests in this. There's an atheist position that says that if you got enough time, anything is possible. The response to that is, well, that really isn't true because there are destructive processes that are also a function of time that are equally effective in preventing things from happening. Time is not the only issue. There are religious people who will say, well, God created time, so he's not limited by it, and that certainly is true. God could have created the earth two seconds ago with you sitting in front of your computer screen or your television set watching this series, the memory in your heads, me on the tape, and all that. That's not a reasonable position, I don't think, at least not for thinking people. We're talking about evidence in this series. We're saying that science and faith are friends. They support each other. They reinforce each other. So the question of time has to fall in that same category. Time is an issue only in that there are vested interests religiously and scientifically and philosophically in what the time has to say. So what we'd like to do in this particular discussion is to start out at least talking about how do we get time? How do we calculate the age? And then we'll talk about some of the difficulties that are involved in the process. What you're looking at now is called the geologic time scale. You would see this in any geology book. You would see it in a high school science book. 
It is the age of the earth as science has reconstructed it based upon the evidence in the rocks. On the left-hand side, you have very long periods of time called eons. Next column is eras, which are not as long as eons. The eras are broken down into periods, which are subdivided into epochs. On the right-hand side, there is a listing of what science has ascribed to each of the periods and epochs that we're talking about. Uh, for example, where I live, the rocks are considered to be Devonian in age. The Devonian age is called the age of the fishes. Why is that? Well, when I take my science students to the local gravel pit and we dig around for fossils, what we find are the fossils of fish and things related to fish, sponges, corals, echinoderms, crinoid starfish, all those kinds of creatures. In 41 years of taking kids on field trips, I never saw a reptile, amphibian, mammal, or human fossil in any gravel pit, and I've been to dozens of gravel pits all over this region. That's true worldwide. So the Devonian being the age of the fishes is because every time we look in this particular kind of rock, the particular age of rock, we see things related to a time when there were no reptiles, no amphibians, no mammals, no humans on the scene. There have been erroneous claims of finding a human hammer in a Devonian age rock, but when you check those out, they turn out to never be true. And we do have to talk about what the evidence shows, what is credible, what stands up under investigation. Now, there are some rocks which are called the Pennsylvanian or Mississippian rocks. In these rocks, we do find the remains of reptiles. We do find the, the remains of amphibians, of insects. The fossil record is very clear. No human remains. No mammal remains. But nonetheless, these periods are indicated by, again, what is found in those rock layers. The Jurassic layer, which is found, and I have studied in Colorado and Alberta. In this rock layer, we find a dominance of dinosaur remains. The big dinosaurs are found in that rock layer. Jurassic Park, the movie got its name because of the Jurassic geological period. These are not only the, the large dinosaurs, but it's also the first flowering plants. We also find evidence of birds. And at the end of the Jurassic period, in what is called the Cretaceous geologic period, we have the event we talked about when we talked about uniformitarianism, catastrophism, the period of time when there was apparently an asteroid collision that caused a massive extinction of animals. And there have been other times when extinctions of this nature have shown up in the fossil record. But again, in the Jurassic rock layers, we have not found any evidence that has stood up under investigation, has stood up under testing of human remains, of human cultures. Those wonderful pictures you see of happy children riding around on the back of a smiling Tyrannosaurus rex are not what the evidence shows. So the geology timescale is based upon what the evidence shows, based upon the age of the rocks as determined by a variety of methods and by what lived during that time. Now, the next question becomes, well, what are those methods and how reliable are those methods? Let me, let me show you a, an easy one to understand. There won't be any trouble with this one at all. You're in a, a road cut in Alaska. And you're looking at some ice layers that are in the road cut. Now, in the summertime in Alaska, it doesn't get super hot. As a matter of fact, the snow that fell the previous winter does not all melt. So those dark lines indicated by the arrows, when you look at them under a microscope, have pollen, they have tons of insects, they have plant material, they have all kinds of evidence of living summer animals. The white layers in between are snow. 
no living things in them outside of perhaps ice worms, but no evidence of anything other than winter. Now, going back to uniformitarianism, today we can look at places, we can see this happening. As a matter of fact, here in Michigan, in the wintertime, you can cut into the snow and you can see the layers from the various snowstorms that we have had where the snow gets dirty on top. But those are very, very fine lines. In Alaska, the lines are quite thick, and then the weight of the snow compresses them. So what you can do here is that you can count the dirt lines, which are summer lines. You can count the white layers, which are winter times, and you can calculate the number of years. How many summer lines are there? Well, I worked on one area where there are over 300,000 summer lines. That sure sounds like 300,000 summers. There are places further to the north where coring has been done and much older times than that have been discovered. Now, that, that's an oversimplification, but it gives you a picture of how easy it is. Now, somebody says, well, those weren't necessarily summers. I mean, after all, it could have been a volcanic eruption that put a layer of stuff in there. No, 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 no. The, the rock layers have grasshoppers, they have mosquitoes, they have plants. I have never seen a volcano erupt grasshoppers. I mean, that, that's not a reasonable explanation. Let me show you another method that is, again, just this is an oversimplification, but it'll give you some idea. How long does it take to make a foot of limestone? Now, that's something we can measure. You can go into the Caribbean, you can see limestone being made. And you will remember in the last presentation, we talked about the fact that limestone is a chemically precipitated rock, not a clastic rock. It's put down by a very quiet, still chemical process. And this is a college textbook on geology. It gives a figure that is pretty much what I have seen in other figures, that everywhere we look on the Earth today, in the Caribbean, in the Mediterranean, in the South Pacific, it takes something on the ballpark of 2,250 years to make a foot of limestone. Now, in the Grand Canyon, we have layers of limestone, some 6,000 feet of limestone. It's actually more than that, but we'll, we'll, not to complicate things, let's just take that figure. 6,000 feet of limestone. If it took 2,250 years to make each foot, and if there's 6,000 feet, how could you calculate the age of the Grand Canyon? The amount of time it took to lay down the limestone. Well, 6,000 times 2,250. If you multiply that out, you're going to end up with something in the ballpark of 12 million years. Now, somebody says, well, that's not the only way limestone can be produced. As far as we know, it is. This is uniformitarianism. It assumes that the limestone is laid down by the same processes that are operating today. Now, you have to decide whether that's valid or not. Another example would be the fact that shale takes 900 years to make a foot of shale in areas like the Gulf of Mexico, so we, where we see that happening today. In the Nile Delta, uh, our shock sound systems indicate there's about 600,000 feet of shale, of mud, turned into shale. If you multiply 600,000 feet by 900 years per foot, you get an indication of a very long period of time. Now, now we could spend hours and hours and hours here looking at all the different methods. Amino acids change from one orientation to another when an animal dies. How long does it take to make a complete rotation from one polarization orientation to another? We have a measure of how fast that's changing. It indicates a very, very long terms of time in millions of years. Tree rings. This is something called dendrochronology. You can look at tree rings and you can match the tree ring sets and find out and construct a period of history because in dry, cold years, the rings are closer together and in warm, wet years, they're further apart. And in the western part of the United States, there's been a continuous record that has gone back for thousands and thousands of years. As a matter of fact, there are over 600 
different methods of dating. 600 different methods. All of them are based upon the assumption of uniformitarianism, that the present is the key to the past. All of them, theoretically, could be wrong. But the big problem here is that they all have predictive value. I have supported my ministry for many, many years by consulting work as a field geologist. I'm able to go places and help people decide from a geological perspective how to use the resources that are on the property they own. How do I do that? I do that because I know something about the length of time it takes to produce certain types of resources. And if I know, for example, that the surface rocks are extremely old, I don't look for oil because oil volatilizes in a very quick period of time, and you're not going to find oil in rocks of great ancient age. If I'm in rocks that are of an age that are at the time of the dinosaurs, that tells me about what resources might be available. It has predictive value. I have another question. Who cares? And somebody says, well, I mean, after all, the Bible says the earth is 6,000 years old. This is an article that was in the newspapers way, way back. I've saved it just because I thought it was kind of interesting. It was making fun, of course. But the question is, where does this come from? Why is this important? And right now, I want to stop for just a minute and make a religious point. More than half of all Protestant denominations teach something which is called dispensationalism. Dispensationalism is the religious belief that the history of the earth is broken down into periods of time that are typified by how God reacted to man during those periods of time. The periods of time are supposed to be roughly a thousand years in length. And we are supposed to be living in the last millennium. Now, the interesting thing about this is that the belief system that mandates this is a denominational teaching. In my own personal perspective, it is not very biblical. There are some major difficulties with dispensationalism theologically. This series is not really designed to deal with religious questions connected with dispensationalism, or for that matter, any other religious belief. But in this particular case, it becomes an issue. Because if the earth is made up of six 1,000-year periods, the last of which will be the return of Christ, the reestablishment of Judaism as a world religion, Jesus ruling from David's throne in Jerusalem. If all of that is a part of what your church teaches, then you can't tolerate an earth that is millions of years old. So this becomes a religious issue. And it's important to understand that if your religion teaches this, you have a problem with science. In the last presentation, I tried to explain to you why I did not believe and what the evidence, I think, contradicts, suggesting the Grand Canyon was produced by the flood of Noah and what that was all about. Why would anybody propose that? Because they're trying to explain away the evidence. The problem is there's so much other evidence. There are historical records going back way beyond 6,000 years. Chinese records that go back some 9,000 years. There's all kinds of historical difficulties with the principles of dispensationalism. But that's the difficulty involved in this process. So something like this, that the earth is 6,000 years old, roughly, give or take, has denominational roots. Many religious people, including myself, do not believe that that is a biblical approach. Much of this started with the work of an archbishop in the Episcopalian Church by the name of James Usher. Archbishop Usher wrote a thesis in which he proposed how the earth's age might be fitted into the Bible. To do that, he made a series of assumptions. It's interesting to read these assumptions. Usher said, I'm going to assume that there are no 
undated verses in the Bible. Is that true? How long were Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden? I have a male chauvinist friend who says, knowing my wife, it couldn't have possibly been more than 10 seconds, but that's an assumption. And it's an assumption that will get you in mucho trouble. The point is, we don't know the answer to that question. As a matter of fact, let me suggest to you that Genesis 1.1 is undated and untimed. In the beginning, something happened. What happened? God created. What did God create? The heaven and the earth. The word heaven here means everything in space. The heaved up things, if you look up the Hebrew word. And the earth. The passage is undated. The passage is untimed. See, what has happened is that people don't take the Bible literally here. And they change this to say, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth, and in the next 31 verses, I'm going to tell you exactly and precisely everything about how, when, where, and why he did it. But that's not what it says. This is a historical narrative. It is written in a historical sequence. In the beginning, something happened. What happened? God created. What did God create? The heaven, the heaved up things, everything in space, and the earth. Okay, what happened next? The earth was, or some translations say, became without form and void. There was a change, something altered, something different. Was it the asteroid collision? I don't know. I wasn't there. We don't know. But something changed. It was historical. What happened next? The Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. These are events. This is not a summary statement. This is history. The assumption of Usher is wrong. Usher says, I'm going to assume that there are no missing people in the genealogies of the Bible. And this brings up a really important point about understanding the Bible. Not too long ago, there was an article in the American Atheist magazine ridiculing the biblical accounts of creation and dating. What they were doing in this passage was comparing the genealogies in Matthew with the genealogies in Luke. What is being discussed here is the genealogies between Abraham and Jesus. And if you look at this carefully, you'll notice that in the process of the discussion, it says that there were 57 generations between Jesus and Abraham, according to Luke. But in Matthew, there are 41 generations. So how can this be resolved? When we say we take the Bible literally, what do we mean? You see, it's important to understand that when you look at the Bible or any other ancient manuscript, you have to look at who wrote it, who they wrote it to, why they wrote it, and how the people of the time would have understood it. Matthew is a Jew. He is writing to a Jewish audience. So he records things in regular Jewish terms. Look at Matthew 1, verse 1. The book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Is that true? Was Abraham, Jesus' grandpa. Well, of course not. If you read the account, you'll see it even tells you in Matthew that was not the case. So what does it mean when it says Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham? It means there was a direct descendancy between Jesus and Abraham. You drop on down to verse 17, and Matthew says, so the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. And may I call your attention to the fact that 14 is twice 7. From David until the carrying away into Babylon are 14 generations, 7 times 2. And from carrying away into Babylon unto Christ are 14 generations, 14, 14, 14. Why the number 14? Why twice 7? Because 7 means completeness, and to the Jew this had a particular special meaning. So Matthew is a Jewish writer writing to a Jewish audience. How about Luke? Luke is a Greek writer. He's writing to a Greek audience. He will not use Jewish terms, symbols, special numbers. Therefore, his account is different. However, the whole process is erroneous because we know that the purpose of it was not to, dis not to establish chronology, but to establish descendancy. So in Matthew's account, he leaves out major characters. Why does he leave out major characters? You can see in this chart, Joash, Jehoiakim, these aren't minor characters. These are major biblical characters. Why are they left out? They're left out because that's not the purpose of the passage. 
And it's important to understand that in Jewish history, when you ask somebody who his father was, you probably open the door for a three and a half hour lecture because anybody that was a good guy and a blood relative was father. If Uncle Harry was a horse thief, Uncle Harry wasn't father, but otherwise he might be. So the Bible is not intended to be used in that way. Usher says, I'm going to assume that the genealogies are all chronological. Well, they're not chronological. We know, for example, that Noah's sons are given backwards in terms of chronology. He says, I'm going to assume that no historical period is missing from the Bible. How about Malachi to Matthew? And the major point, he assumed that the genealogies were written for chronological purposes, and that is not the case. They were written to show descendancy. The bottom line in all this is that the purpose of the Bible was not to give us time. I love the statement of David Lipscomb. I have no way of knowing how long the world was created before man was created. The Bible just doesn't tell us that. It only says in the beginning. And then it goes on and describes the process. One of the most conservative writers that existed in the early church in the United States was a guy by the name of Foy E. Wallace. And I, I think his statement was probably the best one ever written. There is no statement in the Bible which indicates the age of the earth. If the scientist or the pseudoscientist want to ascribe to the earth the age of a million, a billion, or 300 billion, I will not pose to argue in the beginning. That is all the Bible affirms on the question. I think that's exactly right. So having looked at the fact that the Bible does not tell us the age of the earth, and that is not its purpose, and that in fact, when you have someone who is concerned about this, it is rooted in their church teaching, in their denomination's teaching. The real question is, what does the Bible actually say? There's one more response that I want to respond to myself here. And there's somebody will say, well, did Adam have a belly button? <laughs> it's like a silly question to you. But the question is, could God not have created the earth, the cosmos, with apparent age? In other words, could not God create the earth to look like it's 13 billion years old when it's only 6,000 years old? And the answer is, of course, yeah, God can do anything. He has the capacity to do everything, anything that he chooses to do. But let me point out some problems with this. Number one, God tells us over and over and over and over to look at nature and learn from it. And we have looked at multiple passages that talk about that. You can't tell man that we can know there is a God through the things from him that he has made if there are deliberate things in the creation that we would misinterpret. And that brings me to the second point. The Bible presents God as a being incapable of deception, faithful, not able to lie. And let me point out a problem here. In 1987, we saw a star explode. We watched it happen. We have made measurements of supernova 1987a. And we have learned massive amounts about how stars die as we have watched this process. But that star is millions of light years away from us. Now, if God created the earth with apparent age, then he had to send this video to us from a star that never existed, going through the process of dying. He would have to deliberately fake history. I suggest to you that is contrary to the nature of God. We are not in the Day of Judgments going to be able to stand before God and say, now, Lord, you, you faked me out here. You misrepresented something, and that's why I got confused. No, that isn't going to be our line. God is faithful. The idea that God created the earth with apparent age is not an issue, and it is not something that I believe we should consider. So the next thing we would like to do is to take you through the Genesis account, verse by verse by verse. Let's see what it says. Let's see what the fossil evidence says in response to that. How strong is the evidence? How good is the evidence? And how much agreement is there? Is the Bible really a book of ancient myths and silly stories, or does it have a factual foundation? I hope you continue with us in the next presentation.
Right. You ready? Yeah. I'm trying to get your monitor off here. Oh, just leave well, it. It's just not, okay. not fine. Um, we have to disagree right off the bat uh, with uh, Mr. Clayton. He says there are no pictures of children uh, playing uh, with or on dinosaurs. And Chris said, uh, I've got one. Get that light off there. There we go. Look at that. Children washing a dinosaur. It's proof positive. Proof positive. See, it's all in the historical record. Obviously, we are being facetious there. Um, and really do think dinosaurs live with humans, though. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <clears throat> all right. So here is where I think most of us have, have been uh, with him up, up to this point. We have missed, maybe disagreed on some things. We may have had some other uh, association or uh, intake of materials that that make us think a little bit differently on some of the things he has said. Um, but it's getting to the point now where he is going to try to make sure that uh, science and the Bible support one another. And remember, he's coming at this um, in two ways. He's coming at it uh, as a geologist and as a physicist and as a scientist. The man has, I think he says something like 40 years of um, doing this series of Does God Exist? And, and talking with and debating with uh, other people about um, these types of issues. How old is the earth and does the geological record support uh, various theories about how old, old the earth is. And um, he certainly has more at his disposal to make his arguments than I have at my disposal to, to make mine. Um, but he makes an extremely important point. Who cares? Um, Chris and I, as I said earlier, Chris and I may uh, di disagree on the interpretation of a passage, an individual passage. Uh, what exactly is it trying to teach or trying to say? Um, it doesn't mean that Chris and I uh, can't worship together, can't uh, associate with one another, um, can't live in the same uh, household of God um, as each other. And so um, when we're talking about the age of, of the earth, um, as the two people he quoted there, Floyd Wallace and David Lipscomb. Um, all we know for sure is what it says in Genesis. Um, and if we uh, do need an answer, maybe he will provide one that will satisfy us, um, and maybe he won't. So uh, with that said, I, I think Chris has some, uh, some things he'd like to say about some of the things that, that Mr. Clayton um, had to say. Hmm. So like where to start? Um, like I said earlier, I think he's wrong on a lot of this stuff. <clears throat> I can't uh, speak to the scientific part of it. I can only speak to the Bible part of it. Science is obviously his wheelhouse and um, it's not mine. So um, but there are some things I wanted you to pick up on from what he was saying. Um, maybe First thing first we need to talk about is um, he brought up, you know, the dispensationalism. It's a, it's a fairly new idea. Uh, started somewhere around 1500 with that, the guy that he quoted. And um, that that's where, what, that, that is why we think the earth is around 6,000 years old. It's just not the case. Uh, the early church fathers, 1500 years before the guy that he quoted, uh, all thought the earth was young. Uh, they didn't put a specific date on it, a specific number on that, but they all thought it was really young. Uh, obviously, I don't buy into dispensationalism. I don't think that's a biblical thing, um, and neither does Rick. Um, and so um, uh, for whatever that's worth, but uh, I just wanted you to see that the young earth thought started very early uh, and it's not a, a, a new thing that's come on the scene um there's a couple other things i wanted to talk about uh specifically with uh the, the genealogies in matthew and luke um 
so he was kind of saying, well, there's there's some missing components there in these genealogies or something. It seems to me that um, Matthew follows the paternal heritage of Jesus, while Luke follows the maternal. So Matthew is going to may have to back me up on that uh, on the which one's which. That is that is what I have heard, um, and I haven't gone back and and uh, studied that in detail. I've never preached a, a lesson or taught a class on it. But that's always been my understanding that 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 was the difference. And he is absolutely right. Matthew is talking to a, a Jewish audience and Luke is talking uh, primarily to uh, those who are not. And so there there might that might be part of an explanation. I think the one that uh, part of that one of them is more toward the uh, uh, paternal side and the other is toward the maternal makes sense also because that has been given uh, considerable examination by scholars and uh, that appears to be the way it works because whichever one it is ends up with Mary <laughs> just before Jesus uh, rather than Joseph. And so from that standpoint, uh, you could say that, that at least the focus there toward the end uh, was on her side of the family. Um so his his points on the on the genealogies and using them to construct chronology, I think is um, is at least is at least partially legitimate. His assumptions uh, that uh, that Usher uh, developed or uh, used to do to develop his uh, his geneal genealogical uh, explanation um, it's not it's not backed up. There are flaws there. There are periods of time where we have nothing uh, recorded or we don't know how long uh, something was. So um, his the issues he raises with that at least are in part um, valid. So if you go back and you do the math, you can figure out, you know, because Moses wrote down from Adam to Seth to Seth's grandson, how old they were when they each had children. So you can go back and do the math there and come up with a, with a number. A lot of people have done that already. I don't, I don't find a lot of strength in his argument that there are holes there. Um, I see the argument in, in between, you know, Malachi and Matthew. I think there's something there, but we know how long that period was. Uh, that's 400 years. Like nobody debates that these are historical documents. Um, and if you're going to say that, well, maybe Adam or maybe uh, Seth wasn't really Adam's son. What's well, what the Bible says, <laughs> you know? So, like, I feel like you're stepping out on really uh, shaky ground when you start saying stuff like that. Um, I don't like where that leads. I don't like that interpretation of Scripture. I don't like the the the, the fly by the seat of your pants kind of I, I don't like that. Um when I study scripture, I want to be very regimented. I want to take it literally. I want to take it at its word. Um, and I feel like um, he's kind of doing what every other old earth creationist does. He's trying to slam the evidence in with the biblical narrative and it just doesn't work. Okay. So Chris is pretty unequivocal uh, <laughs> on, on, on that point. Um, I, most of us grew up with the understanding uh, that the, the earth was not as old as, uh, you know, some of the evolutionists. And, and I grew up in a time period where some of that evolutional uh, evolution theory was still uh, being developed. Um, I think the uh, there was some shoe. I want to say, well, I know the scopes trial um, about teaching uh, that monkeys came from human beings or vice versa. Yeah. Human beings came from monkeys. Uh, was like in the 1950s. Yeah. Uh, I was born in 1951. And so uh, I don't remember that trial, but I remember uh, the discussion about it as I uh, grew up through my childhood and uh, this I, this notion of, of uh, the naturalistic evolution that, that, that kinds changed kinds and so forth, uh, the Darwinism and so forth. Uh, was was heretical and was uh, against uh, anti Bible, and I believe it is uh, both of those. Um, on the other hand, um, I don't remember any discussions about the age of the Earth unless it was this notion of that the Earth is not that old. 
I believe Usher uh, had was his theories uh, were popular at that time. And those are the things that I have have been exposed to um, over the years. And so when someone like uh, Clayton, who has so much credibility in other areas, um, that his his discussions concerning the uh, un- the uh, the matching the uh, the complementary um, features of science and the Bible that they must support uh, each other or else one or both of them um, is wrong. I, I think makes sense. God, as He said there toward the end, uh, cannot lie, and and deception is lying. And if he created a world to look young with the scientific evidence that we have, um, that seems to be intentionally trying to confuse us and make us believe something that's not actually true. So the question is, is the fossil record reliable? Um, he mentioned uniformitarianism a couple of times in this particular uh, video, and he didn't say we have already said that uniformitarianism is not fact. The earth has undergone catastrophic changes. And so um, theories based on uniformitarianism are suspect um, on face value. He did mention it a couple of times, but he didn't say and uniformitarianism is not um, something we can buy, at least in this video. He did last time and maybe the time before. So um, the question remains, you know, um, an, an intelligent man um, like Mr. Clayton, a man who has um, tried to disprove the Bible with science, um, was converted to Christianity because he could not do so, and that the scientific evidence that he knew and that he continued to learn about supported the Bible. Um, in in so many ways that it was irrefutable uh, for him and that that had to be his conclusion that this that science and the Bible uh, are one, that the same God who created this earth is the same God that is uh, presented um, in in his word in the Bible. And so this consistency between those two is important. And uh, um, he maintains that that is still the case. On the other hand, he also maintains that the fossil record suggests that it's not a relatively young world, that if if our ways of dating things, our methods, and he says there are, he listed 14 of them there, and he says there are over, over 300 ways, I believe, to um, assess dating of, uh, of our world and the, the natural formations we have around us, um, he said they all point to a much older world. So on the surface, we have a fundamental uh, disagreement uh, right now, uh, at least, between uh, what many would say uh, the Bible suggests uh, at the age of the earth and what Mr. Clayton and and other scientists uh, would say. Um, and and uh, the only thing I can say is this. There, there are two, two ways to look at that. Number one is it's okay if we disagree on that. That's not a determine, uh, determining uh, factor as to whether or not we can uh, serve our God and worship with him in uh, biblically authoritative ways. It's not going to affect our, our salvation if we're mistaken. On this point, there's no test to get into heaven on Judgment Day. What was your view on uh, how old the earth was? Um, and it's, uh, you know, just a, uh, a two option. Right. <laughs> two option question. Not I even, really hope I nailed the 6,000 year thing. <laughs> not even a multiple choice there. And so uh, it really doesn't matter. So. um what, what and the other the other thing is this uh, it really doesn't matter and the other thing is this hear him out we are on 28 mm-hmm. is it right now and we've got eight more lessons I believe there are 36 total um, next week so it really doesn't matter right 
See, he's arguing with us. Continue. Oh, I was arguing. <laughs> that was me, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, hear him out. Next week, as he suggested, he's going to talk about Genesis, the first chapter. And um, I'm going to tell you right now, begin opening your mind. And there's nothing wrong with having an open mind. <laughs> as I have said, I think I said earlier on that some of the things he talks about later in this series, which is right now, these things he's talking about right now, has encouraged me to uh, look at things in a new light. And just because I have always thought something or heard something or thought I knew something doesn't mean I can't learn something new about God's word. I learn something new in, in God's word every, just about every time I read it. Something jumps out at me that I really hadn't noticed about a particular passage. All of a sudden, I look at the context of the package passage and I say, well, this one's right here. We've got this leading up to that, and we've got this following that. And that helps me understand that particular verse in a different light than what I have heard it and what I hear my brethren teaching about it. So uh, one of these days, I'm going to uh, uh, write a book or at least an article on uh, the Bible's most uh, misinterpreted passages because they're taken out of context. I have about at least five or six of those. Uh, that I'm going to work on. Um, but what we have always believed is not necessarily always right just because we have always believed it. So any position that we take on anything that has come up so far in these lessons or will uh, be there over the next next few, um, I'd say uh, open your mind, compare it to what you know, compare it to what your understanding of the Bible is. And if you come up with um, an argument that says, I can't buy that, he's going to be fine with that because he says it's immaterial anyway. From his standpoint, as a scientist, as a Christian, a devout Christian, as far as I know, the man has been doing this, these types of lessons and these types of series, speeches, debates and, and uh, teachings and so on for 40 years. And um, uh, people who know the Bible much better than Chris and I more than likely have challenged him on some of these things and he hasn't been swayed. There must be a reason for that. And if there is, so be it. And I will let him have his uh, beliefs and opinions about it just as easily and readily as he will let me have mine. Um, do you have other points? Do you, you want to argue with that? <laughs> yeah. Um I think I'll save my points for next for next week. Yeah. I, I I and I and I that's what I would encourage. Um I would encourage and these things you can listen to these lessons not only does Chris post them right on mm -hmm. Facebook but you can listen ahead if you want. If you go to the does god exist sites site <clears throat> up at the top I think it has um lessons or or videos or something i'll post the link on our facebook yeah, page and it and and it you it has something like tv uh videos or yeah. something of that sort and all all of them are are over on the right hand side of the page with the uh opening picture and the name of the uh, lesson underneath and so you can go down to lesson number 28 um the age of things which is uh, what this one was today and then um you can look at the next next week where he starts talking about uh, walking us through Genesis, the first chapter. And I'm going to tell you, this will be a novel experience for you. First time I heard this one, I said, I've never heard that before. But he's got some some plausible ways of looking at explain at, and uh, and explaining Genesis one in a light that I had never considered. Um, I've been a Christian since I was 13 years old. Um, I'm almost 70. Um, I have I have studied the Bible uh, off and on most of my life. I've really studied it probably in the last 10 to 15 years more than I than I ever had before uh, in the teaching of the classes here uh, at 
at uh, Rome or the last two places I, I was back in uh, Bowling Green, Kentucky. Teaching requires you to be prepared. It requires you to know more than what the people in the class uh, know, or at least try to prepare that way. Because if you get questions, um, then you have a better chance of at least providing them something um, uh, that would qualify as an answer rather than just, oh, I don't know. I'll check into that. I'll get back to you next week. Um, so I think my point was that that when I encounter something new, there are filters. All of us have filters that that new information come into. And the way our brain works, the way I understanding it, I understand this is is when we get a new idea or something that we've never seen or heard before, it travels around in our brain and tries to find something that it that is related to that it can latch on to. And then it settles into that and either changes your understanding about that or stays in there as a contrary notion. Uh, but at least it's in, in that particular area. So uh, later on, when that subject comes up, you have that, if your memory's working well, to draw from. Well, uh, you know, here's what I understand, but I also heard this argument over here that might be uh, plausible. Again, um, open mind, take in what you hear. Uh, and just because you've never heard it before doesn't mean that it's, it, that it's uh, wrong or has no credibility to it. Um, so that's all I'm going to say. I don't, I, uh, the only other thing I was going to say that uh, I had printed out this, this list that he had, and you can do this. You can print screen as it's going through, freeze him, pause him, and then print screen, and then uh, or, or copy that, paste it into a Word document, and you can manipulate it, spread it out, and do whatever you want. I now keep this just in my files uh, so that I'll have it. Um, so, uh, I, unless you have something else, I think we're going to end early, uh, today. That'll give people that if they want to go get a head start on next week, uh, to go, uh, dig out 20, uh, lesson 29, uh, as he walks us through, uh, Genesis, the first chapter. So, an interesting, uh, outcome, um, today, Chris is throwing things at, at the, uh, uh, computer screen. <laughs> no, he's not. Um, but I'm, I am glad that he's adopting uh, the attitude. I'll just hold off until I hear the entire argument. And that's what all of us always uh, should do. Uh, we don't need to jump to conclusions. We don't need to uh, nitpick at pieces until we've heard the whole. And so uh, that's what we'll do. And uh, we'll listen to Clayton next week and see if we agree then. <laughs> see you guys next week. See you. Bye.